I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. As we continue our chronological trip through the Gospels, today we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 17, verse 10, down through chapter 18, verse 35, and then Mark chapter 9, verses 11 through 15, Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 15, and John chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. We'll see the following in Jesus' ministry. He's still ministering in northern Israel up and around the Sea of Galilee. Peter, James, and John, just in the preceding reading, just witnessed the transfiguration. That was in Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9, Mark 9, 2 through 10, and Luke 9, 28 through 36. These events take place in the last year of Jesus' ministry, just prior to his crucifixion. And then at the end of our reading today, we'll be looking at John chapter 7, the first nine verses. And that's when Jesus sends his disciples to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's just six months before his crucifixion. He follows later on in chapter 7 of John and goes to Jerusalem himself. First of all, we see that the Jews missed a big sign in Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 through 13, and Mark chapter 9, verses 11 through 13. Matthew 17, verse 10. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elijah must first come? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elijah truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elijah is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise also the Son of Man shall suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. Now Mark chapter 9, beginning with verse 11. And they asked him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elijah must first come? And he answered and told them, Elijah verily cometh first, and restoreth all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things, and be set at naught. But I say unto you, that Elijah is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it is written of him. Well, Peter, James, and John, they've just seen Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah in the preceding section, in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9, Mark 9, 2 through 10, and Luke 9, 28 to 36. So these three are the disciples mentioned in Matthew chapter 17, verse 10 at the beginning of today's reading. As they're trying to put everything into perspective, having seen Jesus talking with Elijah and Moses, as they're trying to put it all into perspective with regard to Jesus being the Messiah and his necessity to die and resurrect, it occurs to them that the scribes are teaching that Elijah must first precede the coming of the Messiah. So, Jesus, what about that? The answer to this question is vital to understanding the Gospels. John the Baptist could have been Elijah, but the Jews rejected him as well as Jesus, so he was not. What's important to realize from this passage is that the Jews could have realized the kingdom of God through the Messiah had they not rejected him. However, of course, the rejection was prophesied in the Old Testament as well. 
I've written a special article under the topic section of uh, BibleTrack.org, and it's also located on this page for the reading for today, entitled, Was John the Baptist Elijah? For a really clear perspective of exactly what this is all about, take a look at that article. Now, we see in the next section that Jesus cast out a demon. This is recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke in Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 to 21, Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29, and Luke chapter 9, verses 37 to 42. First, Matthew 17, 14. And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed, for oftentimes he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart, and said, Why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. Now from Mark's perspective, and his is lengthier than both Matthew and Luke, Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him. And he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out. And they could not. He answered him and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell unto the ground, and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, Of a child. And oft times it hath cast him into the fire, and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us, and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried, and rent him sore, and came out of him. And he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Now from Luke's perspective, in Luke chapter 9, verse 37. And it came to pass that on the next day, when they were come down from the hill, Much people met him, 
And behold, a man of the company cried out, saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is mine only child. And lo, a spirit taketh him, and he suddenly crieth out, and it teareth him, that he foameth again. And bruising him hardly, departeth from him. And I besought thy disciples to cast him out, and they could not. And Jesus answering said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? Bring thy son hither. And as he was yet a coming, the devil threw him down and tear him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and delivered him again to his father. Well, we find, as I mentioned, the fullest account of this incident in Mark's gospel. Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, are returning from the transfiguration. At this point, they apparently are still in northern Israel around Caesarea Philippi, where they derived in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Jesus' remaining disciples had stayed behind and had made an attempt to cast a demon out of a man's son, but with no success. Jesus does cast the demon out, and as a result, the boy is healed. I should point out here that not all sickness is to be attributed to demon possession. Look at my article under the topic section of BibleTrack.org entitled Trial versus Chastisement for more details on that subject. Notice the description of his symptoms in Mark chapter 9, verse 18. It says, And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. Or there's no question... Today's doctors would have diagnosed this young man with some sort of extreme mental illness, and they would have medicated him. But Jesus concurs with the diagnosis of his father that it must be demon possession. We see that Jesus' disciples had made a failed attempt to heal the lad, but wasn't able to be successful. Apparently, Jesus' remark was aimed at his disciples when he called them faithless and perverse because of their failure. Jesus must have sensed that the disciples were not praying for healing in the proper context of faith. After extricating the demon, Jesus is asked by his disciples why they weren't able to do the same thing. Jesus points out that it was because of a lack of faith. How is this faith acquired? Well, Jesus replies it by prayer and fasting. Paul practiced fasting himself, since fasting is mentioned in the New Testament approximately 31 times, and in 26 different verses, it'd be difficult to maintain that fasting is not a valid practice for believers today. Isaiah dealt with the essence of fasting in Isaiah chapter 58. Now, in the written notes of BibleTrack.org, I've listed some references to fasting in the New Testament. You can also look at the written notes of uh, BibleTrack.org for Isaiah chapter 58 and see a complete overview of fasting in the Bible, Old and New Testament. With all the references in the Bible on fasting, I'll admit that it's a little difficult to pull together a comprehensive doctrine on fasting, but it is obvious that the concept has not been invalidated under grace. We do glean from these passages, though, that it would appear that fasting is akin to importunity or persistence. It adds a level of sincerity and urgency to our petitions before God. Incidentally, God knows how sincere we are, but fasting may very well be the key that helps us realize how importantly we regard our own petition. In other words, fasting demonstrates an intensity in prayer that may not be demonstrated in any other way.
In the next section of Scripture, we see that Matthew, Mark, and Luke record an incident where Jesus prophesies his crucifixion. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 32, and Luke chapter 9, verses 43 to 45. Matthew 17, 22. And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men. And they shall kill him, and the third day shall he be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. Now from Mark's perspective, in Mark chapter 9, verse 30. And they departed thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying, and were afraid to ask him. Now Luke chapter 9, verse 43. Luke writes, And they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. But while they wondered every one at all things which Jesus did, he said unto his disciples, Let these sayings sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. But they understood not this saying, and it was hid from them that they perceived it not, and they feared to ask him of that saying. Well, apparently Jesus and his disciples had been in northern Israel around Caesarea Philippi, where they arrived back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Now they passed through Galilee, headed toward Capernaum, where they arrive in Matthew chapter 17, verse 24. We're still a few months out at this point, but here Jesus prophesies his betrayal, death, and resurrection. I should point out again that Jesus was not captured. He surrendered himself to fulfill prophecy. Jesus was not murdered against his will. He gave himself freely. He clearly states the necessity of his crucifixion, as he did back in John chapter 3, verse 14, and again in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, and again in John chapter 12, verses 31 to 33. That's just to name a few of the references where Jesus uh, tells of his impending crucifixion and resurrection. All three synoptics record the words of Jesus on this occasion as he prophesies not only his betrayal and crucifixion, but also his resurrection three days later as well as prophesied right here. Mark and Luke point out that while the disciples heard Jesus say it, they just didn't understand exactly what he was talking about. Their lack of understanding regarding the necessity of the crucifixion is seen all the way up to the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, the next section of reading is only recorded by Matthew. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 to 27, we get a lesson on paying taxes. Verse 24, And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? He said, Yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon, of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute, of their own children or of strangers? Peter saith unto him, Of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, Then are the children free, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them. Go thou to the sea, and cast and hook, and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money." that taken given to them for me and thee. It's interesting to note that the reason Jesus said they should pay the 
tax levied upon them in verse 27 is so that they wouldn't offend them. Isn't it interesting that the only account of this tax-paying instant is by the former tax collector, Matthew? Obviously, Matthew wants us to know that Jesus complied with the taxation laws, a subject that didn't seem to interest Mark, Luke, or John. The lesson is clear here. Pay your taxes for the sake of your testimony. However, there's a little more to this story than that. This tribute is specifically the temple tax specified back in Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 to 16. The tax wasn't levied on the Levites, just the men counted in the census who were 20 years old and older. The exiles also agreed upon this temple tax when they returned to the land back in Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 32. The question Jesus asked of Peter is a general one regarding taxes when he refers to verse 35, the custom or tribute. Neither of these two words describe the didrachman, the temple tax of verse 24, but they're general words describing taxes, period. So here's the question. When a king imposes a tax, does he collect it from his own children? Peter acknowledges that his own children do not pay the king-imposed taxes. Jesus then confirms in this scenario that the king's children are indeed free from the king's imposed tax. Jesus then in verse 27 indicates that he, for that very reason, should be free from paying the temple tax, but he directs Peter to comply for the sake of testimony. So here's the big question. Why should Jesus be free from paying the temple tax? Well, the point here is quite clear. The priest and the Levites were not responsible for paying the temple tax. It was their house, so to speak. Jesus, as the high priest, certainly should have been exempt. However, since he is not acknowledged as such at this point in time by the authorities, Jesus will pay the temple tax. Next, we have the three authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, weighing in on the salvation of small children. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 7, Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 42, and Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 50. Matthew 18, 1. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea." Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Now Mark chapter 9, verse 33. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child, and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he saith unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. 
And whosoever shall receive me, receiveth not me, but him that sent me. And John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name. And he followed not us, and we forbade him, because he followeth not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he were cast into the sea. Now Luke's account in Luke chapter 9 verse 46. Then there arose a reasoning among them which of them should be the greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and set him by him. And he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. And John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followed not with us. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. Well, this incident takes place in Capernaum, a city located in northern Israel on the north coast of the Sea of Galilee. This passage has often been used by many to assure that children who pass away before having received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior still go to heaven. While it is true that a child is not held accountable for his sin nature before maturing to a point of recognizing a need for Jesus Christ as Savior, it does not appear that this is the passage that teaches that concept. Jesus is using the child as an analogy here to show that a relationship with God doesn't rest with the powerful or the sophisticated, but with a childlike simplicity of the heart. So what about the salvation of small children? Where does the Bible teach that these little ones are indeed safe? Well, first of all, King David had a a sense, an understanding of the safety of small children in God on the occasion of the death of his firstborn son to Bathsheba. This was the child born to them out of their adulterous relationship, and that child passed away shortly after birth. After praying, David says in Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, the following, But now he is dead, wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. There was a clear understanding in the Old Testament among God's people that they would be reunited with their little ones after death. The Apostle Paul, in talking about sin and accountability, makes an interesting statement to this effect in Romans chapter 7, verse 9. Here's what he says. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Now, let me ask you this question. When was Paul ever without the law? If you look at his testimony in Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, here's what you see. Paul gives his own testimony and says, Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul clearly indicates in that testimony that from his birth forward, he was an observant Jew who kept the law flawlessly. 
Yet in Romans chapter 7, verse 9, he says that he was alive without the law once. Well, when was that? And when did the commandment come when sin revived and he died? He's surely referencing his childhood before he was accountable for his own sin nature here. It's clear from Scripture that children are safe until they mature to the point of understanding sin and salvation. Well, what age is that? People are always asking me that. Well, that age would obviously vary. This we know, Romans 10:17 says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So our responsibility as parents is to expose our children to the word of God, and then we're going to let the Holy Spirit take care of the rest. It's worth noting, however, that the last verse in this discourse, using the child as an object lesson, Jesus says the following in Matthew chapter 18, verse 14, which we're going to get down to in just a few moments, but let's go ahead and quote that now. Even so, it is not the will of your Father, which is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. Now, in light of the discussion on salvation of children that we just looked at above, this verse tends to lend strength to the doctrine of the safety of children. Mark and Luke record an excerpt of the conversation on this occasion that Matthew doesn't include. And they do so in Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 41, and Luke chapter 9, verses 49 and 50. It's triggered by Jesus' statement in Mark 9:37 as he's speaking to the children when he says, Whosoever shall receive one such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. To the apostles, it doesn't seem right that someone would be casting out demons in the name of Jesus who's not physically walking and ministering with the apostles themselves because they were following Jesus. Jesus' reply reinforces the understanding that discipleship cannot be understood in a single context. If you'd like to do a more in-depth study on the issue of discipleship, then let me suggest that you look at my notes for March the 18th, the written notes. And uh, there under the the section of Scripture on Matthew 16, 24 to 27, Mark 8, 34 to 38, Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 26, I give a greater explanation of the difference between salvation and discipleship. So, in other words, here's what I want to make sure you win and stand here. It's important to understand the different calls to discipleship. Jesus acknowledges here that not all disciples of Jesus necessarily accompanied Jesus during his earthly ministry. There were disciples of Jesus Christ who did not physically walk with Jesus at the time. In the next section of Scripture, we're going to see that discipleship is not a casual affair. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 8 and 9, and Mark chapter 9, verses 43 to 50. Matthew 18, verse 8. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off, and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if an eye offend thee, pluck it out, and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Now Mark chapter 9, verse 43. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, 
cut it off, that it is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. For every one shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost its saltness, wherewith will ye season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace one with another. Now, for people who wonder if it's okay to casually serve Christ, this passage should put that notion to rest. Mark most fully records Jesus' comments on discipleship on this particular occasion. Don't get hung up on the exclusion of body parts here. Obviously, Jesus knew that a hand or a foot does not have a mind of its own. The lesson here is actually wholehearted discipleship. Our Lord seeks a full commitment from us on a continual basis as a matter of reasonable discipleship. The Apostle Paul says the very same thing in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, when he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Then he goes on to say in verse 2, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In other words, discipleship is not a casual affair. Those who please Christ present themselves daily as a living sacrifice to God's direction. So, now let's answer the question in Matthew 18, verses 10 to 14, Who are these little ones? Matthew 18, verse 10. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you, that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. How think ye, if a man have an hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine, and goeth into the mountains, and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, in these five verses, Jesus references the little ones and then begins a short discourse on lost sheep. Here it's important to realize that the child used in this illustration that we saw earlier was to point out the lack of power and sophistication required for a relationship with God. When Jesus was preaching, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were the powerful and sophisticated, but the everyday Jew was looked down upon as somehow inferior. Jesus rejected the Jewish leaders and opted rather to minister to the lost sheep, as we see in these following two verses. In Matthew 10, verse 6, Jesus says, But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And in Matthew 15:24, he said, But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In this chapter, Jesus is again talking about these lost sheep, these everyday Jews, to whom he's presenting himself as their long-awaited Messiah, and that's in compliance with Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. The messianic message of Jesus as the king over the earth based in Jerusalem is the clear message of Jesus at this point in his ministry. 
So the little child of this passage illustrates the simplicity of faith required for a relationship with God as compared to the sophisticated demeanor of the Jewish leadership which cut them off from God. Now, in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, we find the scriptural basis for church discipline that's still used today. Verse 15, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more than in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Jesus makes reference to the church in this passage before there was a church per se. This word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia, and it literally means a called out assembly. Therefore, this passage relates to God's called out assembly both then and now. Specifically, Jesus gives three steps on resolving conflicts within the assembly of those bound together by their common relationship with God. Today, conflict resolution should be handled according to these four steps that are outlined in these three verses, Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Here's the first step. The offended party goes to the offender one-on-one to cite his grievance. Number two. If step one fails, the offended party goes back to the offender with one or two witnesses to cite his grievance in front of them. Number three, if step two fails, the offended party, along with the witnesses, they go and cite the grievance to the church. Number four, if step three fails, then the church excommunicates the offender from the church and treats him as though he were an unsaved person. The command of excommunication at the church of Corinth is seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-13, through 13, and that's founded on this very principle. This is a painful process within a local body. For that reason, it's often ignored. Scripturally speaking, this is the way the church is to handle these kinds of disputes within the church and by members of the body of Christ. Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that the church at Corinth was miserably failing by airing out their disputes in court rather than at church among other believers. Even though it's kind of unpleasant, conscientious church leadership see this process as their normal administrative duties in shepherding the flock of believers entrusted to their care. Next, we find that Jesus comments on the authority of believers as they agree together in Matthew chapter 18, verses 18 to 20. Verse 18, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. In the preceding passage, Matthew eighteen fifteen through 17 on the issue of church discipline, Jesus described the process of believers coming together for the purpose of dealing with a brother who has committed a trespass. In verse 17, they're told that if he neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. 
Well, that's immediately followed with verse 18 here, indicating that the strength of their decision has heavenly authority. This passage seems to endorse the heavenly authority of agreeing saints. Incidentally, it's improper use of Scripture to deduct that the converse here is true, that the individual believer lacks power without the assistance of another believer. All believers have the presence of the Holy Spirit within. As believers are filled and led by the Holy Spirit, they experience the power of God as a normal occurrence in daily living, even without the presence of another believer. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 25 describes the Holy Spirit's role in believers' lives. The context here would seem to indicate corporate authority in manners like those described in the church discipline measures of chapter 18, verses 15 through 17 of Matthew. The wording used by Jesus here seems to be identical to that of Matthew 16:19, when Jesus told Peter, Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That context lends a different emphasis to the statement. That statement gave Peter and only Peter special authority. In this passage, the context is dealing with church lifestyle issues, and it's directed to all the disciples, not just Peter. Unlike the passage in Matthew 16:19, where Jesus was just talking to Peter and used the singular form of the second person pronoun, in this passage, the ye shall bind and ye shall loose, both of those are plural second person verbs. And so here we find that Matthew 16:19 has singular verb forms, and in this passage we have plural verb forms indicating that before only Peter was the subject there. Now what about forgiveness in Matthew 18 verses 21 to 35? Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. But forasmuch as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife, and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. The Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him an hundred pence, and he laid hands on him and took him by his throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother 
their trespasses. You'll notice that forgiveness is to be freely given when requested. Now let's pay close attention to the context in which this passage occurs. Beginning back in verse 15. Remember that verse that we looked at a few moments ago? Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. Well, the eventual outcome of the unrepentant offender in this passage is excommunication from the church. It's not forgiveness. It's excommunication from the church. The four-step process is often overlooked by many teachers today in the course of talking about the concept of forgiveness. Now take note of another passage of scripture on this issue when Jesus said in Luke chapter 17 verse 3. Here's what he said. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. Accountability is an important aspect of forgiveness. First of all, the offender or debtor should initiate the process of forgiveness by requesting it. Upon request, it's scripturally unacceptable to refuse to forgive someone. Conversely, it's inappropriate, according to Luke 17.3, to forgive those who have requested no forgiveness. I mean, let's face it. If they're never held to a position of accountability for their offense, their process of spiritual maturity may be slowed or perhaps even thwarted. Likewise, Jesus forgives us for our sin when? Only when we request it. However, when one declines to ask for that forgiveness, it's not extended. Why, the process of child training taught in Scripture involves holding children accountable for offenses and forgiving them when they request it. It's not uncommon for parents who overlook the offenses of their children without rebuke and correction to end up visiting those very children in prison one day when they become adults. The prevalent teaching of extending forgiveness freely while requiring no accountability from the offender lacks a good contextual scriptural foundation. I think the real point of this short-sighted teaching is rather that one gets released from the anger or anguish that they feel as a result of being offended. Therefore, the concept to be taught should be one of the believer committing the wrongdoer to God for correction and subsequently experiencing a personal release from responsibility for that wrongdoing or that wrongdoer so one can go on with one's life without that continuing anguish hanging over their heads. You'll notice that the parable Jesus uses to equate forgiveness is releasing one another from financial debt. Likewise, an offender against another is a debt that should be acknowledged by the debtor. Once acknowledged and forgiveness is sought, it should be freely given. And then we finally take a look at the book of John, John chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. Let's go to Jerusalem, verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doest anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world." 
for neither did his brethren believe in him. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up into this feast. I go not up yet into the feast, for my time is not yet full come. When he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. Now, chapter 7 has a curious verse here. It says, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. While our English word Jewry here is defined as Jews collectively, here the word is translated from the Greek word Eudea, usually translated Judea. In John chapter 6, verses 26 to 59, Jesus at that point was addressing a group of Jewish leaders in the synagogue there in Capernaum that was up around the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel. Jesus at that time had declined to go to Jerusalem for the Passover feast specified in John chapter 6, verse 4. As a matter of fact, the last time Jesus had gone to Judea was for the feast of the Jews. That's probably the Passover back in John chapter 5, verse 1. That means that Jesus remained in Galilee for a year and a half ministering there. That was the time between John chapter 5, verse 1 and here, John chapter 7, verse 2. Therefore, John chapter 7, verse 1 is really the capper for the events up in Galilee recorded in John chapter 6, verses 26 to 59, where Jesus had a very, very confrontational meeting with the Jewish leaders there. In actuality, when Jesus heads for Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles in the next gospel reading that we'll be looking at in John chapter 7, verse 10, John doesn't record him leaving Judea for the six months leading up to his crucifixion. However, the synoptic gospel accounts do record Jesus ministering in Samaria and Perea during this six-month stretch of time. As a matter of fact, Luke records in Luke chapter 17, verse 11, that Jesus did, in fact, make it back up to Galilee in that region prior to his crucifixion. So now it's time to head back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a fall festival. This eight-day festival specified in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 33 to 36, is a festive time in Jerusalem. Secular history tells us that at this point in time, whole towns would shut down to head into Jerusalem for this festival. Now, I've written an article on the Jewish festivals. It's under the topic section of BibleTrack.org if you'd like to get an overview. The first day of this particular festival also marked the anniversary of the dedication of Solomon's temple. That was specified back in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 62 to 66. Jesus' brethren obviously feel like it's time to show Jesus off to the big crowds that will be attending in Jerusalem. They want these people to see his miracles. Now, verse 5 is kind of curious here. It says, For neither did his brethren believe in him. Well, from the preceding verses, it's obvious they knew he was special. What they did not understand or believe, along with the rest of the apostles, was that Jesus must fulfill Isaiah's suffering scenario as the Messiah, recorded in Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. That's the meaning of verse 5 there, when it says, For neither did his brethren believe in him. They thought the object was to get large crowds to follow Jesus, while the real objective was to fulfill prophecy. 
To them, the place to make it really big was back in Jerusalem. Well, Jesus declines to attend with him, but he does follow later in John chapter 7 and verse 10. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.